Another night, another glass, and the usual suspects turn alive. It's the drunken epiphany before we all pass out. The kind of time that makes you believe you have the answers securely up your sleeve. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for tuning in for our latest podcast recording. Uh, as usual, we would like to thank the New World Brewery for hosting us this evening and for the local bands who always contribute their great music for our recordings. Our guest this evening is Anna Giuliano from the Moffitt Cancer Centre. Good evening, Anna. Oh, thank you. Good evening. Um, so, if you could give us a quick walkthrough of what you studied and how you ended up at Moffitt doing the research you're currently doing. Okay, um, so I guess it starts with the mid-1980s. It goes back a long way. <laughs> um, and it starts with the first publication showing that um, human papillomavirus is found in cervical cancers. And the first hint that this is a long-sought-after virus. And I was a lowly graduate student um, who was happily apprenticed to the head of pathology, and this is at Tufts University, and she said, you have to understand what this virus is. This is really cool. And so, although it was not my dissertation, um, she got me reading about HPV and cervical cancer. And that took me to Arizona. It was a long, crazy story from Boston to Tucson at the U.S.-Mexico border where the rates of invasive cervical cancer were highest. And I said, this is where I'm going to put myself and this is what I'm going to do. And um, did that for 14 years in Arizona and realized that there's the other half of the world and those are males and started a series of studies on males and eventually um, was funded for a very large international study and Somehow that caught wind at Moffitt, and they said, why don't you move to Moffitt? And the next thing I knew, I was lured and recruited and moved to Moffitt 10 years ago. Tell us a little bit more um, specifically about the current research you're doing, because I understand you're an right. epidemiologist. That's right. Um, so, you know, what, what epidemiologists do um, when they're studying HPV is to look at the natural history of the infection. Um, so this is an infection that's unlike HIV, which people often confuse because two of the three letters are the same. Um, but HIV, once you're infected, you're always infected. We do not have a cure. HPV, um, a large number of people are infected. In fact, the majority of people will have been infected at some point in their life. But unlike HIV, most people are able to spontaneously clear the infection on their own. So a really interesting thing to understand is why is it that some people can clear but other people don't? And why is it that the people who don't clear a subset actually develop cancer or general warts? And so those are the kind of studies that we do as epidemiologists. Um, my current focus looking at the epidemiology is focused on males, um, which has been grossly understudied. So we're kind of filling in all of that natural history and all the anatomic sites in males where HPV can cause cancer. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit more about HPV itself and how that's transmitted. Right. So this is a sexually transmitted infection. It is not a blood-borne infection like HIV, so it's not 
a semen-derived de or a blood-derived infection. This is a skin um, infection, and transmission is skin-to-skin -skin contact. So typically we think of intimate sexual behavior as a way of transmitting infection. Um, so there's sexual intercourse, and then there's everything that leads up to it that those behaviors can lead to a transmission event. And one of the key things that you're looking at is actually the, the vaccine to right. prevent people from getting it. Right. All right, so here's the other really cool thing about HPV. I said that HPV shares th two out of three letters with HIV. Big differences. One, very few people in the United States have HIV. Most people in the United States have HPV, okay? Nobody spontaneous or very few it's almost impossible to spontaneously clear HIV most people spontaneously clear HPV on their own okay the people who don't are at really high risk of having cancer this is both males and females another huge difference HIV is an RNA virus so what does that mean so it's very similar to flu virus where RNA viruses are constantly changing this is why every year we have a different formulation of the flu virus well, that's exactly the, the same challenges that are presented with an HIV vaccine. We have an HPV vaccine because this is a really, really old virus. It's a DNA virus that has not changed in structure. So the good news is that when you create a vaccine against it, it's going to stay efficacious against that virus for a very, very long time. So this is a really cool thing. So once you figure out what caused the cancer, and which types of HPV, people started to immediately start developing a vaccine. So within, it was like a decade, um, first identification of HPV in cervical tumors was in the mid 80s. By the mid 90s, there was already a vaccine that was developed, it was going into human trials. By 1999, we were doing the first proof of principle trial. And the rest is history. I mean, by 2006, we had a licensed vaccine that can be used to protect women against HPV infection. By 2009, we had licensure for males. And now, as of December last year, we have a new generation vaccine that protects against that many more types. So it's really cool. It's happened very, very quickly. But the interesting thing about this is that the uptake is not as high as I guess you would like it to be. Right, exactly. Um, so, okay, we started with how do you get HPV? And I said, well, it's a sexually transmitted infection. And, and therein lies the core of the problem with getting uptake in the United States. So Australia, being very different than the United States, didn't have a problem with this. And um, delivering vaccine in the schools, and over 80% of the girls are fully vaccinated against three, with three doses. You know, we've been talking about this within our own group. Americans don't feel that they need public health anymore. They haven't seen polio. They haven't seen smallpox. And up until just a few months ago, they didn't see measles, um, right? And so the, the issue is Americans say, well, I don't need that because I'm not going to get that. I'm not in that group. Or I think the risk of being vaccinated is greater than actually having the disease, but they don't understand the disease. Then you add layer on top of this whole skepticism about public health and vaccines 
the fact that, hey, this is a sexually transmitted infection. So what are parents saying? My daughter's never going to have sex, so she doesn't need this vaccine. <laughs> I think that's very optimistic. <laughs> now, I think the, the parents aren't quite saying that about the boys. So when the boys come in, I, I think there are other arguments that perhaps are being used. Anyway, bottom line is we have a vaccine that will prevent multiple cancers in males and females. And the potential for doing that is is lessened by the fact that people have questions about vaccines in general and the, they don't know how to deal with the sex issue. Yep. So how do you try to overcome that? If you see that they don't believe in the public health system, um, they're not listening to their doctor, they're getting their information from random websites, how do you get around that? Well, the issue is that um, a lot of the doctors aren't actually giving the message. If you ask people, if your doctor told you that this is something that's really good for you, would you do it? And most people say, yeah. That's the first line of defense, is getting the pediatricians to say, hey, you know what? This is a vaccine that can prevent multiple cancers in your son and in your daughter. You need to do this. And I think if the physicians were really straight with that kind of a message, we would see a much greater uptake of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, but. You know, pediatricians are a wonderful bunch, and they are our front line for prevention. They really are. I mean, they are the people who deliver the most important vaccines that all are, are outstanding prevention vaccines. But the problem is that they also, you know, are, are used to seeing parents of five-year-old children. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of an uncomfortable conversation to have when the parent says, oh, well, tell me about this HPV and how you get it. And then there's, there's this reticence of, oh, my God, the parents aren't going to be comfortable, and now I'm not comfortable. Yep. Um, so one of the things is to arm the pediatrician with a message. This is a vaccine that will prevent cancer, period. Mm -hmm. You could prevent breast cancer. Wouldn't you take the vaccine that could do that? So I read recently that I think there was a picture of Elvis Presley who was being vaccinated for polio, I believe. Really? And this actually increased the uptake of the vaccine by I don't know how many folds. So everybody just rushed out to get it done. Do you think there'd be a modern day equivalent that you could get yeah. to do the same thing? Well, I don't know. You know, so we need um, we need a nonpartisan um, <laughs> child. I was thinking, oh, it'd be great if the Obama's girls were vaccinated. Um, but that would just polarize things even more. Yeah, I think that would really help. I mean, on the flip side, we have Jenny McCarthy, who, Ooh. yeah, a beautiful actress who says her child developed autism because he was vaccinated. Well, if we had the other, the opposite of that, that would be great. Yep. Somebody yeah. today suggested to me Taylor Swift. I don't know what people would make of that. <laughs> How old is Taylor Swift? 25? Yeah, let's vaccinate Taylor Swift. So then the young girls would ask their mother, well, Taylor Swift was vaccinated, so I really need to be vaccinated. Yep. Got Must. it. Okay. Yep. We need a guy like that, too. We need a young guy <laughs> to be vaccinated. Okay, so you said that the HPV can be passed from one person to another. Once someone's contracted it, do they then become immunized against it yeah great so you know like if it were chicken pox um the best way of you know having long-term immunity against chicken pox is to have chicken pox right um so it doesn't work as nicely with hpv um so we say that for women it's around 50 to 60 percent of women will develop um, um immunity to that type of hpv 
it's a lot lower for men. And in fact, men, because of that, remain susceptible for reinfection of the same HPV type throughout their lifespan. Uh, all the more reason why the really best strategy for creating uh, uh, immunity or taking people out of the susceptible pool is to vaccinate. So I'm going to switch to taking some questions from other people. And David would like to know, um, does having more information about HPV make people more receptive to the vaccine? Um, absolutely. I think that's, that's a really critical issue. A lot of people, so let's start with this. Everybody thinks it's just a vaccine to prevent cervical cancer. So the guys are saying, well, I don't get why I would need to be vaccinated. So that other half of the world, all the males, um, we need to present information to say, hey, it causes disease in males as well. It's not just a cervical cancer vaccine. And then I think the same you know about the safety i mean you know a lot of people think about vaccines from the old school vaccines which is live attenuated virus where there's risk of infection and this vaccine like the hepatitis b vaccine there is zero risk of infection so mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about that um so there, there are things that we can definitely educate on that would i think immediately help this the story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so artem would like to know um He's only started hearing about HPV recently. So how old is this virus? This is a really old virus, as in the virus probably co-evolved with humans. Um, oh, wow. And it's so old that it's, it's millions of years old. Um, so, but that raises a really interesting question in general. So here's a virus that's been around for a really, really long time, yet we only identified it in the 1980s. So that really leaves this question of, well, what else have we not identified that is a virus that actually causes disease? And we just don't know about it. It's been around, but we just haven't identified it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how does the treatment course differ? Uh, between a, an infection-based cancer and a non-infection-based one? Well, that's a really good question. Um, we would like the treatment to differ because it turns out that when the cancer is caused by HPV, it is um, far more sensitive to um, radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's possible that we can actually treat with lower doses. And in fact, that's being tested right now with oropharyngeal cancer. Um, but that's, that hasn't been tested and hasn't been evaluated across all of the cancer sites where HPV causes cancer. And that, that's a huge opportunity for us to develop less um, toxic treatments, so to speak, um, because a lot of times, you know, you cure the cancer, but you leave this poor cancer survivor with a lot of morbidity, you know, so problems swallowing with oropharyngeal cancer, um, bone problems, and so on. So if we could back off on the treatment and still cure the cancer, that would be a really wonderful advance. Dan would like to know, uh, what proportion of cancers are thought to be caused by viruses? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> um, so we say one in five. Worldwide, one in five cancers are caused by infection. And for HPV, one in 20 cancers worldwide are caused only by HPV. Um, so it's actually quite a large burden when you yeah. think about it. And yet nobody talks about this and, you know, and people would like to even ignore that we have an HPV vaccine to prevent cancer. Which is unfortunate to say the least. Right. But we're going to change that. 
how was the HPV vaccine created? Aga would like to know. So this is a virus that we can't grow in culture. So the idea of trying to create a live attenuated um, vaccine was not going to work because you can't manufacture enough virions to be able to do that. The approach taken for the HPV vaccine was borrowed from the approach taken from the hepatitis B vaccine. And, and that's a second-generation Hep B vaccine. And what that was was, can we identify the proteins on the shell of the virion that are responsible for the antibody response? And if we can do that, then what we can do is manufacture a particle where we only have those proteins. Um, so we know we can get an antibody response and we have no threat of infection. We don't have any of the DNA or any of the other proteins that cause the cancer. And it turns out that in the laboratory, there were several different groups that were working with animal models that observed that the protein that elicits the antibody response is this one protein called L1. And, you know, it's one of those, like, man, we're really lucky. Like, that happens to be a, a protein that you can synthesize in different systems. It, it self-assembles into a virus-like particle into a perfect virus-like particle without having anything else inside it. In part, it was ingenuity in figuring out what was a protein that elicited that antibody response, and it was sheer luck that that one protein also behaved beautifully in culture, self-assembled, and could be put into a vaccine. So there's, and this is probably a lot of science's sheer luck and serendipity and some really smart people that take advantage of, of a good situation. I would like for any one of those three things to happen to me right now. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't, it's one of those things that you don't plan for in your career. It just happens and you go with it. So this is potentially someone who is very bitter from school. Should we vaccinate all girls or just key specific people that happen to be popular in school? <laughs> right. So I don't know about you guys, but none of us would be vaccinated, I think. If I, I certainly would not have been vaccinated. Yeah, I wasn't in that popular group. Um, so that's kind of like saying, um, should we target the vaccine to quote-unquote high-risk populations? And do you think anybody, if I put it that way, I guess if I said, if you were popular in school, you need the vaccine, that might be a positive spin on it. But if I said, um, if you're at high risk because you have X, Y, and Z behaviors, you need to be vaccinated, you know, what do you think the reaction's going to be? Hey, that's not me. I'm not yep. in that high-risk group. And that's exactly what happened with the hepatitis B vaccine when it was first rolled out. Nobody was going to step forward and say, yeah, I'm really a high-risk person. Um, so those sort of strategies really don't work. We know that from past vaccines. Um, and given that HPV is so common, um, there really isn't a high-risk group. Everybody's at risk. It's one of those equal opportunity viruses. Um, I would say that would not work. Okay. So Arturo has a nice one for us. Uh, he says, you probably have to talk to people about sex and body parts a lot. What's the most difficult part about that? Um, you know, so actually I have another dirty story. <laughs> so I was invited to speak to a, a urological society. So these are guys who deal with these body parts all the time, right? And so, by the way, most urologists are men, which I find really interesting. Um, so I get to the podium and I'm talking about penile HPV infection and natural history and transmission and so on. 
And these guys in these beautiful, expensive Italian suits in the audience start giggling like they haven't heard that word or something. Um, it was just, I wanted to say, now, boys in the back of the room, stop laughing. Tell me what you're laughing about, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, the word penis is something that most people have a very difficult time saying, and I have to say it at the podium all the time. And I have been told by my colleagues that, um, we did a recording um, session for, um, it was a medical education session where it was a back and forth interview. And the cameraman, this is New York City, and the cameraman was blushing every time I said the word penis. He just couldn't, he didn't know how to deal with it at all. And this is, you know, hardcore cameraman in New York City. Um, Would you so not be just a, tempted to say it repeatedly to make I, you know, people... Exactly, and I actually joke with my colleagues and say, okay, now you have to say that word over and over and over again to get over the, you know, the awkwardness of saying the word. Okay, since we have a, a load of our math nerds here, what do you think the role of um, mathematical oncology is on kind of reducing the burden of biological studies in these kinds of situations? Um, so um, these are my buddies. Um, so I feed them enough information to get some basic estimates, and then they have the opportunity to say, well, what if, um, and create scenarios that are real-life scenarios that, that a lot of us don't have a chance to actually collect real data on. Um, so if you look at the cost-effectiveness analysis, so this is population-level mathematical modeling, um, they have been crucial to getting policy recommendations across the world for a vaccine. And their models have been really instructive in helping us to figure out what is the proportion of individuals that will progress to a disease and what if we can prevent X proportion of that with a vaccine that has a certain amount of efficacy with a certain amount of duration that we just don't have data for right now. Um, and it's the outputs of those models that are given to policymakers and are used to decide does a country purchase vaccine or not and if it does at what price do they purchase vaccine and negotiate from there so i'd say it's uh, part and parcel and really important to the work we do you mentioned that some people clear the virus are we studying them to figure out how and why they do that and why others don't We do. We have them in all of our studies. Um, And I wish I could give you a simple answer of who they are, like what are their characteristics. Um, I can tell you that, you know, people who smoke are less likely to clear the virus, you know, and I can tell you other factors, but nothing is 100%. This is where luck comes in as well. And, you know, I have a hypothesis that most people who acquire HPV are going to clear because they're HPV is infecting in cells that rapidly turn over. And maybe what really defines who is going to persist and develop cancer is the bad luck of having that virus infect a stem cell. X percent of cells have these really fetal-like stem cell characteristics. And this is, you know, pretty new research that um, there's some evidence for that at the cervix. But my hunch, and this is complete hypothesis, is that that's the issue at probably at every anatomic site where HPV causes cancer. And it may explain why it's only a small proportion and we can't find any other characteristic. I mean, there's nothing that, you know, compelling. But it may simply boil down to the bad luck of which cell was infected. 
So, to wrap up, I would like to say thank you very much for coming out this evening, Anna. It's been very informative and very entertaining. Uh, we'd like to give you a pint glass, which you might already have since... Oh, I've for got those, it. I'm getting a collection. This is yes. great. Thank for you. those who don't know, Anna was actually um, a speaker at last year's festival. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Thank you for inviting me. Good night, all. unfolds and there's more to know a chance a gift just how lucky I am to peel back the layers and peer within the fleshy machine in which we begin and slowly end our days in the sun a dying star where it all begun the night we come undone Stars above. So we were doing a study. Now you have to picture this, okay? You're in the desert at the U.S.-Mexico border, and you're doing a research study just over the border. So FedEx doesn't work really well, because if you wanted to FedEx specimens, it would have to go from this border city to Mexico City, and then Mexico City back to some major city in the U.S., and then down to Tucson. So we said, look, we'll just drive the highway, and we'll pick up packages. Now, you have to imagine the setting. So U.S.-Mexico border, and what do people care about at the border? <laughs> Drugs, right? So here we are with our little box with dry ice and cervical secretions. And we thought, oh, man, they're going to hold us up at the border. They're going to put this in some, you know, suboptimal freezer, and our specimens are going to be gone. And so on. Border Patrol looks at that box and looks at the label, and you should see them. They step back like 10 feet and go, oh, we're not touching it. Just pass it through. <laughs> Shrouded by a blanket of stars. A part yet still a part of it all I close my eyes and I sink within The soup of atoms from which I began I'm reabsorbed for life to begin again And again Days in the sun been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in for a manifestation of our lives a manifestation of our lives